Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking about the complex topic of realism in role-playing games. But before we get into all that good stuff, what the hell is going on? Hey, some eldritch horrors about to hit eBay. So, just to set the stage for this, when we put out the Blasphemous Tome issue 4 last year, we had a fantastic cover sent to us by Evan Dorkin, who is one of my favourite comic creators, and it was an absolute delight to get this thing from him. And, and I use the word thing advisedly. Uh, he did a drawing of a Paddington-inspired eldritch horror, which he dubbed Padthulu. And this proved to be somewhat inspirational. Yes, and David Kirkby is a sculptor and he took it upon himself to recreate Evan's drawing in 3D as a model. The cuteness in clay. Indeed. And I've seen other pieces of his work and you can follow him on Twitter. He does he does all sorts of wonderful bits of sculpture and, and so on. I, th- I think he also has an Instagram page, doesn't he, where he's got photographs of a lot of the things he's created. Almost certainly. Instagram is a step that I've not taken because yeah. I just feel I have enough social media in my life. I don't really want to seek more, well, although Instagram does sound good. David has created this really wonderfully rendered sculpture and painted it. So we have it now. He sent it to us. And it is going up for auction today, the day that this episode releases, on the 5th of March 2019. And the auction will run for 10 days. So if you go on to eBay and search for Padthulu, you can probably find it. But safer to come to our website, blasphemoustomes.com, and there'll be pictures and links to the auction. But more importantly, we should point out where the money is going. Yes. The money is going in aid of charity, and it's something that David and ourselves have all agreed that the money should go to cancer research. So all the money raised from the auction will go direct from eBay to the charity. On the convention front, we've just had, at the time of recording, one of the largest residential conventions in the UK return to us. Contingency took place up in Hunstanton this year. Bit of a change from its normal venue. Historically, it's always been down on the south coast around the New Forest area. Apparently, Sunny Hunsant is a nickname for the place. There was a bit of local uh, history or folklore associated with the term. All uh, right, so it's it's not just ironic then? No, no, apparently that was actually a a landing of, I think it was one of the old kings, I think Edmund, uh, landed and it was a particularly sunny day. So he just happened to pick the one day of the year when the sun actually shines (laughs) in the UK. But no, that is actually a, um, a term associated with the place. It's a yeah, nice little place. The, the little bit I saw of it, pretty much running 11 games and playing two, the curse of the GM being I very rarely left my chair in the lodge. But yeah, good time. I, I saw some of the pictures that James Mullen posted of the countryside surrounding the, the venue, and it looked like real M.R. James country up there. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was kind of eerie in some places, like deserted arcades and uh, hard seeing anyone around out on the streets, just the occasional seagull and the uh, the sea off in the distance. No, I, I love the place. And we announced this in the show notes of an earlier episode, but this is the first time that we've had a chance to talk about this on the podcast itself. There was a vote a little while back on the EN World website where they asked people there what their favourite gaming podcasts were. There were about a little under 10,000 votes. There were something like, you know, the best part of it, 100 podcasts nominated. 
And they broke the results down into two categories, actual play podcasts and talk podcasts. The actual play podcasts, I must admit, I'm, I'm not overly familiar with a lot of actual play podcasts out there, but I was gratified to see that our good friends at How We Roll came in at number six. On the talk side, our good friends at the Smart Party, I think, came in at number six. Uh, the Grognar Files came in at number two. And surprisingly, at number one, I mean, who, who the hell came in first? Incredibly, we did. <laughs> I got this uh, message from Scott saying, do you remember that poll that was on like weeks ago? And I'm like, yeah, we won it. <laughs> I was amazed. Because yeah. there have been a number of polls over the years and, and, and so on, and we've been entered in them, but we've never come close to winning one before. So yeah. I was, I was pretty staggered. Yeah, so, so thank you very much to everyone who voted for us. I think your reaction, Paul, when I told you was exactly the same as when Joe Trier told me on Discord, which is, no, you're making this up, you're joking. Yeah, <laughs> is this some sort of elaborate joke? <laughs> Matt, do you listen to Spotify? I've heard of it. You've heard of it? You don't listen to it? No. Is that because there's nothing on there, you know, that you're interested in? Nothing worth listening to, really? I mean, it's just loads of, like, modern music and old music. You, you lost me at modern music, but yeah. I've, got, I've got plenty of CDs that I still listen to. So yeah, I, but, yeah, but let me tell you, for, and all you people out there who've been on Spotify, and, you know, there's a world of music, but you can't find anything to listen to. Well, now you can listen to the good friends of Jackson Elias right there on Spotify. Yes. Yeah. As if there wasn't enough stuff already on there. (laughs) But yes. We're raising the tone. We are. And not long after this episode goes out, on the 16th of March, there will be another Concrete Cow. Concrete Cow 19 will take place in the old bathhouse in Wolverton. This is the one-day gaming convention organised by members of the Milton Keynes Role Playing Club. It's £5 to get in. It's a very informal thing, so just turn up and there will be games. Yeah, I hope to be there, and if I've got it finished, then I'll be running a new scenario called If I Had a Hammer. (laughs) Okay, that doesn't sound sinister at all. (laughs) And now on to our main topic, realism in RPGs. Well, what do we mean by realism? No, I'm asking you guys, what do we mean by realism? (laughs) Well, to me, it means how much do the things that occur in a role-playing game mirror what I would expect them to be in our reality? Well, is it just in our reality? Because your expectations about what might be possible in a science fiction game or a, a fantasy game or you know, a superhero game reflect a kind of reality, but it's the reality of that genre. There, there are adjustments, I think, that one makes for a genre... So if we think of a science fiction setting, uh, yes, perhaps they can go faster than light or things like that that aren't achievable in reality and there are various things that aren't real. But I would still expect if a person is just a regular person, I'd expect them to be able to do the same things that I can do in terms of jumping and physical activities. For me, if I'm trying to pin down what I mean by realism in games, it's going to come down to three main things. One is just plain suspension of disbelief on a personal level. Is what's happening in the game going to undermine my suspension of disbelief in what's going on? Secondly, is related to that is a degree of consensus. So if it doesn't undermine my sense of uh, suspension of disbelief, is it going to screw with anyone else's because they perhaps know more about what we're talking about? 
And third is just, I think, a word we're probably going to end up using an awful lot in this discussion, which is the idea of verisimilitude as opposed to perhaps you know, 100% reality, which is that veneer of reality or that plausible description that allows us to suspend our disbelief. But what's real and what's not to you? Oh, uh, how long have you got, Paul? How long have you got? I was going to say, that's, that's an answer for a psychiatrist, surely. <laughs> yes. I just thought I was going to go with accuracy, whether it be factual accuracy, historical accuracy. Is it real, in inverted commas? Does it mirror the real world in terms of the physical facts you're laying out in the game? And is it appropriate to the genre you're trying to emulate? But considering mm. how much people disagree about fundamental facts and interpretations on a daily basis about absolutely everything... Just saying accuracy implies implies a degree of objective reality that doesn't necessarily apply to a fiction like this. There are some facts, though, that can't be argued. Like You can't say that Columbus didn't land in 1492. You can't say that... You can't um, say man didn't land on the moon. <laughs> oh, but there you go. That, that's, there's got to be a scenario behind that somewhere. But, but on the other hand, if you had a game in which part of the premise was that you know, Columbus didn't land in 1492, or perhaps that you know, you're looking at an alternate history where America was founded much earlier by the Vikings and Leif Erikson and so on landing there, and, and that's the, the Western civilization mm. that built up. Is that then a bad game? Is that undermining your sense of reality? Or if you establish that as part of the fiction of the game, do you then buy in and suspend your disbelief? Because then you're being adhered to canon, which you are saying is specific to the setting of the game that you are using to say that this is the way that the world is. As long as you're consistent with that, then that is accurate. Well, consistency is a big one, yeah. I think when you play a game or you watch a film or you engage in any fiction, there's a contract that you make that... This stuff is real, like it is in the real world, and this stuff, I'm happy, is different. It's a bit of a grey line. For example, in D&D, yeah, you know, I can make fireballs fly out of my hand, but if I say that the ceiling's 20 foot tall and I'm just going to reach up and pull something off the ceiling, it's like, well, you can't reach it. How are you doing that? Mm. So there has to be a justification within that fiction for that thing to happen and you know that can be magic it can be science fiction it can just be we've said the world is not like it is now it's different but there's certain things that change if everything changes and it could be anything it's like becomes almost meaningless because this is quite a big topic and you'll find that we're looking at this from two very key perspectives we're going to be breaking this down into a discussion regarding realism in mechanics of games and realism in terms of their setting Hence why you'll find part one and part two. Then let's start off by looking at realism in game mechanics. How much of a role do game mechanics play in setting the expectations for what is and isn't possible in the game? Do we expect the game mechanics to handle all that stuff? Or is this something that we don't think is a job for mechanics? I've got a good one that's come to mind recently, because this is something I've been thinking about in related to Powered by the Apocalypse games, particularly um, Cult. The particular moves that you have very much dictate the things you can do in the game, and likewise things you can't do in the game. They do help to set the canvas very neatly to say this is the type of game that is going to feature X, Y, and Z, 
let's say, A through B or D through G isn't relevant to this particular game. So, yeah, I think it really plays a particularly underrated or undernoticed part of how mm. that comes to be. I think that's something you can say about most game mechanics. Game mechanics, I think, implicitly set the tone for a game. They set parameters. They're pretty much the construct about which we build this consensus reality that happens at the table. I think they fall short a lot, because I think when you said it defines what you can do, Matt, I totally buy into that. It'll say this character can use this magic spell which does this thing or this character can persuade people and he's got this skill of persuade or something like that so that's defined does it define what they can't do in the way that there's other game systems where i know you can do x but they have no mechanical equivalent in let's say cult yeah using, using, going back yeah. to that example the big one for me is something like spot hidden you can have a character that goes into a room to observe a situation, but there's a definite list of what they can and can't notice within that scene. They can extrapolate certain bits of information, but there's no role that says, you walk into a room, give me a role to see if you notice the thing hiding in the corner. Or do you notice this particular thing, or can you search for a particular item? But you can do that with using Call of Cthulhu. That could be a spot-hidden role. Or Unknown Armies, it could be a notice role. It's, there are certain things you can and can't do with that set of mechanics. So, for example... I'm a player in your game, I've got my character sheet, it's got those things that I can do. I say, I'm going to jump out the window and fly to Tesco's. Is there anything in the game that says I can't do that? Uh, the default reaction from me would be, fine, you can make the roll, you can ro I will not make the well, roll. roll? You, you can run out of the window, we cut you in hospital, with you <laughs> sat in a bed after taking four harm. But my point <laughs> is, no game mechanics that tell you that I can't fly. Do you see what I mean? So mm. I'm using an mm. extreme example. That is no, a very extreme one. There are lots one. of things in the game <laughs> that aren't defined as to what a human can't do. And we just make a judgment on that. We just have a consensus. Like, well, how can you fly, Paul? You can't fly. I, th I think this is a really important point because it's not an argument I see very much these days. But going back 15 years or so... I remember seeing a lot of arguments when there was this burst of new, fairly rules-light games that were coming out that didn't attempt to model the reality of the world through their mechanics. The, the mechanics were much more about creating drama, about modelling story. And one of the biggest objections I saw to them at the time was, well, these mechanics don't stop players from doing stupid things. And, you know, sort of, no, but in a lot of cases, the mechanics of the games that you were playing before didn't stop players from doing stupid things. I think one of the examples was I reach up and pull down the moon. Yes. Which, what, where does it say I can't do that? Yeah, the, in the same places it says you can't do it in d and I'm sure there's a spell in some obscure book that allows you to do it. <laughs> in which case, that's fine, because that then becomes part of the agreed reality of the game. And a game that brought that home to me very strongly was Dogs in the Vineyard. And this was a game where, as a player, you had a lot of license to narrate your own uh, activities and what your character was doing. And that could be fantastical. But it was very much down to the group just how fantastical that could be. And I found this with Pulp Cthulhu as well, mm. that people are used to playing Call of Cthulhu and they almost impose rules constraints on themselves because they, they've got it in their head they're playing Call of Cthulhu and they have to free up a bit and realise that, oh, we're playing a different game here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I've, I've been running uh, The Two-Headed Serpent for How We Roll and it's taken this long, I think, for the group to fully embrace the fact that this is Pulp Cthulhu. 
And the last few sessions that we've recorded have been very different than the early ones in that the the players are much more willing to take risks. Their characters are doing things that are not constrained by conventional reality anymore. I mean, they're not completely farcical things like, yeah, I reach up and pull down the moon. But it is things like, well, I'll run up a cliff and, and jump on the back of this flying creature and see whether I can wrestle it to the ground and stuff like that, which they probably wouldn't have attempted in Call of Cthulhu because that would just spell death. They're no longer investigators. They're big damn heroes. Ex- exactly, mm. yes. So going back to your question, how do the game mechanics inform our sense of reality and what we can and can't do? Is that Pulp Cthulhu mechanics letting them do that? Sort of. I think rather than you know, there being explicit things and they're sort of saying, oh, right, well, you can take these bigger risks, you can do these bigger, you know, these larger-than-life actions... I think it's the implication that you have higher skills and more luck, so you've got more chance of succeeding at some of these really dangerous things. You've also got the option of surviving certain death if you have enough points of luck. So all these things that you'd be too cautious to do in Call of Cthulhu suddenly open up to you in Pulp. But mechanics-wise, as GM, aren't you also perhaps allowing people in the Pulp Cthulhu to do things without a role? which you would probably ask for a role for in Call of Cthulhu. Potentially. I think that is less of a case of mechanics, though. And this comes down to the whole consensus uh, aspect of of Mm. defining what is real in the game, in that it's not necessarily always down to the entire group. In a lot of more traditional gaming groups, people look to the GM as the arbiter of what is allowable and what is not. I mean, the the whole classic thing, you know, I walk into the room, is there a lamp in here? You know, rather than just saying, I walk into the room, I'll pick up the lamp. Mm. And so the GM arbitrates a lot of that stuff. And I think the fact that it's Pop Cthulhu gives the GM permission to perhaps be more lax with stuff like that. Yeah, and where the line between mechanics and just GM decision and, yeah. and the group consensus lies is, is, is a difficult thing to pin down. But I think my reply to the question would be, in some ways, the mechanics, they define what you can do more than what you can't do. I think this is something that games have largely moved away from over the years. I'm sure there are still plenty of systems out there that do this. But in the late 80s, early 90s, there did seem to be a real move towards more and more complex game systems. It wasn't just adding lots more character creation options or lots more tactical options in games, but that seemed to be more granular, that seemed to be trying to model objective reality more and you know there was this design philosophy the the more a game system modeled the complexities of reality the better it was i think there's an inherent thing in us or many of us when we meet rules is to create more rules and more rules and more granularity within the rules it strikes me that as soon as we start to create a player character in most games, what would you say is a common attribute, Matt, in, in most games for player characters? Strength. Strength. So as soon as you get a strength stat, is that it? Because doesn't that then start to say, well, oh, that indicates how much you can lift. Okay. Or, how, or how hard you can punch. Yep. We could, the three of us later on, have a, like a weightlifting competition and yes, see who's strongest. Yes, we could. You know, it's a pretty crude <laughs> thing to measure. But I mean, you could sort of say, oh, there's strength of grip and there's strength, yeah, you know, various measures of strength. But 
as a whole, I feel it's an easier thing to kind of gauge than dexterity or intelligence or things like that. But once you gauge strength, you gauge how much you can lift, you gauge how much you can carry. That leads to encumbrance rules. That leads to having to give every item a weight, perhaps. That leads to saying, you can wear this kind of armor, but not this kind of armor. It leads to, you can use this size weapon, but not this size weapon. So now every different weapon has to have a different weight and a different damage type. And if you're stronger, you're gonna cause more damage. So that one little thing of saying, let's give a strength stat, opens out a huge multitude of things that end up on your character sheet. Mental I think. note, don't put strength down on the sheet. Either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, alternatively, I mean, you can look at it from the point of view of games that still use the idea of traditional attributes, and a lot of games have thrown that out the window, but it has stripped them down to the bare minimum. So you've got games like Hot War and Cold City, where you've got one physical stat that covers absolutely everything physical action. You've got one social stat for everything social, influence, and you've got one mental stat, insight. You've just got those three. I mean, even more so, then you can strip it down to, say, something like Troll Babe, where you have a single stat, which is referred to as your character's number. The higher it is, I'm trying to remember, uh, is reflects whether you're, 10, better at, yeah, uh, whether you're better at physical stuff or magical stuff. Yeah. Or over the edge, which breaks it down by the likes of occupation. Yeah. It seems like you either keep it really simple, but as soon as you start to add a bit of complexity, it opens a floodgate and, and there's no end to it, almost. I'm, Certainly when I was working on, on Seventh Ed rules, you know, that there were loads of additional things that we considered, particularly about weapons. And if you're a small person, should you be able to use... Um, a massive heavy I know, sledgehammer as a weapon so should there be a strength limitation on that for example it's interesting that call of cthulhu comes out of runequest and runequest does have a lot of rules for stuff like that in in, in the game mechanics there is all that complexity of you know stuff to do with weapon reach i mean even things like exhaustion endurance you've got you know strike ranks which represent how much faster you might get into combat with a longer weapon got hit points for weapons and stuff like that and there are you know you've got hit locations all these things which you can bring into call of cthulhu which were there in the source mechanically for call of cthulhu but which, you know, Sandy Peterson and Greg Stafford and everyone involved in the first edition of Call of Cthulhu decided not to put in because they weren't necessary to create the realism of the genre that they were trying to convey. And I guess if you're a computer games designer creating something like Skyrim or Horizon or something like that, they must have to write loads of routines in the software to mirror all those things. Mm. But they, they kind of got to do that because they can't get away with not doing that whereas in a D&D game or a, sorry a role-playing game we can you know we can do that on the cuff uh, but it's almost like sometimes as as designers rule designers try to do all of that in a role-playing game as well we've assumed though there that particularly crunchy games games with a lot of mechanics are there because those additional mechanics are trying to model some kind of objective reality or model physics in some way Thinking about it, though, I think a lot of the the more recent, I'm, I'm saying more recent, I mean, like t last 10 or 15 years, crunchy games that I've seen, that, that, that crunchiness isn't there trying to model reality. So I'm thinking about things like D&D &D 3rd Edition, uh, Pathfinder, 
Um, well, I thought you uh, just yeah. said recent games. Uh, well, yeah, okay, so 20 years. I'm showing my age here. Uh, Exalted. These are all, you know, games with a, a lot of mechanical options, with a lot of complexity in them. Yeah. And buckets of fucking dice! But very little of it is there to enforce any realism that we'd see in in our world. That it's mostly genre emulation or genre creation or cool powers. There are some games I really like that have a really nice, quick, easy character gen system. And then you have something like Traveller where you die before you get to the <laughs> end of it. There's a very wide scope here when looking at granularity of character creation systems. Granularity applies to a lot of different things. I mean, Traveller's an interesting example because the character creation is quite complex, but I think the characters you create are comparatively simple. I mean, they're not much more complex, or I don't think any more complex than AD&D characters. Again, going back to that, you know, late 80s, early 90s school of design, we did see, you know, lots of attributes, lots of skills. The, the idea that it was important to differentiate between subsets of skills. And I think, you know, we still see this a lot in games today, that you know, it is important to the reality of the game to differentiate between... Well, I mean, let's, let's use Call of Cthulhu as an example here. You know, until 7th edition, it was important to differentiate between shotguns and, and rifles in terms of the skills. Fist, headbutt, kick. Yeah, mm. that... There was some kickback against the conflation of, of a rifle and shotgun as skills in Call of Cthulhu. What I felt was if you are good with aiming and firing a rifle, let's say you were world-class expert at that, you were Olympic standard at firing a rifle, would you just be then base skill with a shotgun? Really? Because it's very similar kind of thing you're holding out a long-armed weapon and firing it at a target so either you put in some sort of rule whereby a chunk of your rifle skill then feeds through to your shotgun skill which seems like rather complex and there is a, an aspect of that as an optional rule but to put the two together just seemed easier and indeed some games just have a firearms yeah. skill well, and some games don't even have hmm. you know, a firearm skill at all. They may ha maybe have a combat skill, or you know, we were talking about um, Hot War and Cold City earlier. That would just come under your action attribute. Yeah. It doesn't matter what weapon you're using. But I think it's interesting to compare that single firearm skill with a multiplicity of firearm skills. Yeah, but it's that idea that somehow granularity makes it more realistic. Again, a lot of that comes down to the assumption of what it is that you're modelling and why. So, with Call of Cthulhu, do you think that it's important to look at the mechanics of modelling people's actual you know, physical capabilities and mental capabilities? Or do you think that there's a degree of abstraction there? Well, that's not an either-or, is it? Well, no, I mean... Well, explain. I think we are trying to model it, but through abstract, through an abstraction, dexterity is an abstraction. It, it chucks yeah. a bunch of stuff together. It chucks your speed, your fine motor skills, your running speed to some degree, your reaction speed. All those things are different attributes, really. But we abstract them into one thing. But at the same time, through that abstraction, we're trying to mirror what people are like in real life. So we're simplifying you down to a strength stat, an intelligence stat, 
how well educated you are. Those those things are abstractions, but they're there to kind of give me a, a feeling of a real person. If, I mean, I think a good example is Over the Edge. And that was the first game that I encountered where I thought I could actually create me mm. or I could create Matt in Over the Edge. And I can say he's got a main thing that he does and then he's got a couple of smaller things that he does and a flaw. So four dice in bibliophile um, and <laughs> <laughs> you don't need anything else. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't making. Know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. I don't know quite what those things are off the top of my head. I don't want to do that. But by doing that, they're, they're just, you kind of give a feel of a person. But, I mean, this is what intrigues me about the mechanical aspect of it. Because I, I've seen and I've played some fairly crunchy games that try to put this this massive degree of granularity into not only character creation, but, you know, the way that damage works and combat works and so on. You know, the way skills work. Oh, yeah, I've seen these these very abstracted ones. And it's it's a question of how designers and how players who go out and seek these games and GMs who go out and buy them, how they choose what is the appropriate level for them or the level for that genre. How do you decide what is an appropriate degree of abstraction for, say, something like Call of Cthulhu? I think it comes down partly then to how much they will see that particular stat being a part of regular normal play of the game that they're trying to produce. One thing that came to mind when we were discussing particularly how detailed you can get in a particular game character creation is not a particularly wholesome example, but if I remember right, there's anal circumference in Fatal. Oh, yes. Yeah. How yeah. often is that going to come up in something like Over the Edge or Call of Cthulhu or any other game? It depends whether you're playing <laughs> one of my games, Matt. <laughs> I had that going through the back of my head. I didn't want to say, <laughs> but no, no. I think that's that's a good point. Yeah, I think you define as a games designer, you define the style of game you want to play through the complexity of the rules. It's not to do with genre, I don't think at all. I, I don't think the level of complexity of the rules is anything to do with the specific genre because you could have a, a huge complexity in any genre or or a very minimal mm. complexity in any genre. So it's just down to the style of game. So when we were working on 7th Ed Call of Cthulhu, we were trying to keep it in the mode of the traditional Call of Cthulhu. We made adjustments, we added some rules, we took some rules out. But overall, we were trying to keep a similar experience. So it necessitated having a similar level of granularity and complexity or simpleness to the, to the rules. There's one thing about complex rule systems, particularly rule systems that attempt to model reality, model physics, that, that's occurred to me, and I, you know, I'd be interested in, in both of your opinions on this and see whether you, know, you think I'm completely off base. You know, I do wonder whether the reason particularly a lot of you know, inexperienced GMs and, and new players are attracted to relatively complex systems is that it takes that degree of... Uh, of subjectivity out of the game that if you're not a particularly confident gm or if you're a, a, a group of players who doesn't necessarily trust your gm to make the right decisions instead you're putting your trust in the game mechanics to handle these things that might otherwise be gm calls or, or consensus i think to a large degree over the years role-playing games have had a lot of numbers in them hmm. and i think that's attracted people who like numbers and specificity and breaking things down and 
you know there's just this easy thing to do to add complexity to stuff so i think just people just naturally end up doing that and at the table every week somebody will say oh i don't think you can do that that's not Mm. possible so oh does that need a rule does that need a house rule and then you just get rules built onto rules and also because it is a game and a game necessitates rules to limit what someone can do you know and rules are there partly to protect my player character Mm, yeah um you know we had a debate in my DD game the other week about you know what the monster's abilities actually were because it was looking like and indeed one of the player characters an 11th level druid did get killed you know there was some sort of gray area about what the monster's capabilities were within the rules or was that down to the dm yes this opens up a whole can of worms you, you, if you look at the the OSR philosophy of you know rulings not rules, the idea that you know the the GM should arbitrate on a lot of things that aren't specifically in the rules, but you know with more complex games, you know you're looking at the rules, you know exactly what you were saying there with sort of debating whether or not the rules apply to this. You're not trusting the GM's rulings there. You're sort of saying forget about what Robin decided there as the DM. What do the rules say? Because this came up on a Sons of Cryos podcast like 15 years ago oh, yeah. or more. I mean, that was a fantastic show. I don't know if it's still around. But, oh, no, um, no, it stopped over 10 years ago. No, no, I mean, it, it, I don't oh, know it's, if it's, it's still available. Yeah, it is still on archive.org. I checked the other day. Oh, right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'll try to remember to link from the show notes because, the, the, I mean, just as an aside, this is the podcast that probably more than anything else was responsible for the good friends of Jackson Elias existing. Oh, undoubtedly. Because yeah. Paul and I got really enthused about this and thought, we've got to start a podcast. Yeah, many hours I spent in the pottery shed listening to the Sons of Cryos. But they had, uh, an interesting observation that somebody in their D&D game and I think it was like third ed D&D the DM had had a, like a hobgoblin or an ogre or something pick up a tree and smash their player character with it and they were like hold on how is a monster of that scale picking up a massive tree mm. he's really really strong but it was just a regular you know this monster and, and if you look at the monster manual stats for it it wouldn't be able to do that and it was kind of like, well, yeah, that is kind of true. By the specific example, the DM was allowing the monster to do something which it shouldn't be able to do and thus potentially killing the PC. Should the DM be constrained by those rules as yeah. well? So once you build in rules, they're also a constraint on the DM. Whereas, like you said, with the old school thing of DMs making rulings rather than rules, that kind of gets around that. But it can still cause bad feeling. How about you, Matt? I mean, what do you think of the idea that agreed-on rule sets are there, you know, almost as a protection against bad DMs and bad DM calls, or at least as a way of enforcing consensus? I think it's good that it enforces consistency. The example that's been going through my head um, throughout this is going back to a playtest we did some years ago where we encountered a monster and um, I'm sitting there thinking, this doesn't sound right. This this is vastly overpowered. And then jotting down stats as they were mentioned, like, oh, it's got a strength of 100 or it's got a dex of 75. And, so. and then comparing that to other existing creatures in the beastery and going, this thing's more powerful than a fucking demigod, when its description definitely wasn't that. And so, yeah, I think there is a certain degree of... I think it gives you a framework 
that as a GM that if you want to use a particular beast you can compare it against something else that's obviously much more higher power level and you can give that scale in there so it helps as a guideline I wouldn't say it's maybe a safety net to protect players but as a safety net if anything for the GM and a guideline for the GM and that's is that to do with reality or is that applying rules though I'd say it's more, again, consistency within the, within the game, that you don't have something that suddenly just goes, hang on a minute. Um, it's that player, that player moment of disbelief when they start questioning, is this right? This brings to mind an example that I played Werewolf many years ago, and we're changed into wolves, and we're being pursued through a forest. And it's a dramatic scene. They're chasing us. And you know we have to keep making rolls to see if we get away. And, and then it clicks in my head, hold on. These are humans on foot with guns that are chasing us. We're wolves. We're having to roll to get away from them. Mm. Uh, they could be worth that. That, in my mind, might trigger certain things like, well, maybe they're actually worm tainted. Maybe they're they look human, but they aren't really human. Well, I think we questioned that, and they were just like regular, you know, security guards or something. Oh, like fuck! They, they should have been lost after the first roll. Then yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I, there was I, this... I can see having one round of rolls to see whether you get out of gun range. But it was clear that the, the storyteller wanted to create a dramatic scene so he wanted to to use game mechanics to create that sense of drama and tension and i could understand that but it's like that's where my sense of reality broke when wolves couldn't outrun humans so when you get a situation like that where you think that a gm is acting against the written rules of a game how comfortable if you're as a player you know do you feel in the player's position challenging the gm about that oh i've played enough now that i've got no problem calling him out I'd, I'd say, uh, like, point of order here, are you sure this this works because of X, Y, and Z? I'd back up my argument to present them with, well, I think this is wrong because of this, but if they then turned around to me and said, there is a reason for this, such right. as, using that werewolf example, mm. yeah, they look human, but, hey, they're actually worm-tainted, or they've got some of them, they're not really human beings under there, they'd say, that's fine then, well, carry on. But it would give, give them pause to think that if they've just thrown something in randomly and think, oh, we can do this, and then they suddenly think, ah, yeah, hang on a sec, then I'm, say, I'm more than happy calling them out. Why do you make that challenge? Is that because it's breaking your sense of reality, because your, your, your sense of immersion, um, or is it that you, you think it's unfair? Bit of column A, column B, really. Yeah, I'd say a bit of both in, in some instances. Yeah, I think it could be either. So it could be unfair in that my character, at an extreme, my character is going to get killed for something that really shouldn't be happening because it's just not realistic in my perception. Or that, yeah, it just doesn't seem realistic. Yeah, I mean, how about if the, the GM is going against the rules or making what you think is a bad call because that's helping their sense of uh, their, their suspension of disbelief? I'm thinking about a very particular example from my D&D uh, days back at university where you know there was one particular dm i played with who yeah i mean really wasn't a very good dm i mean he, he ran some fun games but every now and then he'd make really bizarre decisions and i remember we we had this one particular situation where we were trying to i think break into a castle under siege or something like that and there was some sort of cantilever bridge that went across the castle and we were trying to get past i think guards on the bridge and one of the players was playing a rogue, so he, he decided that he was going to do the whole swashbuckling thing of, of uh, he, I think he was up on top of the bridge and he kind of threw a, a grappling hook across and then jumped down and swung across the, the heads of the guards and up onto the, the battlements. 
And the, the DM sort of said, all right, you, you do that. You get to the bottom of the rope and you dislocate your shoulder and you drop to the ground in the middle of the guards. And it's sort of, well, well OK, I mean, for a start, don't I get a roll or anything here? And it's, well, but, but what the fuck? I mean, I'm just trying to do a swashbuckling manoeuvre. And, and, and the DM just said, well, that's the realistic thing that would happen. <laughs> yeah, that just describes him being a bit of a dick, really. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I guess then it's a question of that whole idea of what is realistic in a situation. Do we abandon our ideas of what is real in, say, a game of D&D in the case, you know, this whole idea of the rule of cool, you know, is a cool thing, you know, for him to jump on that rope and swing across and get onto the battlements. And so, obviously, yes, that should happen. But if you from your knowledge of human anatomy, look at that and think, right, someone's dropping 30 foot on a rope, of course they're going to you know, do themselves a mischief. I think that there is a certain degree of skill that can come here that would help to dictate the outcome. It's still going to be made pretty painful. I mean, slamming into a concrete wall is pretty, pretty damn painful. Um, but <laughs> you, no, this... you, sound, you sound like you're talking from experience, Matt. No, I was actually thinking about what a film I watched the other night. Um, <laughs> I think it's called The Night Ate the World. Is a weird take on a zombie. Uh, oh yeah, fight, yes. but you've got this this guy basically trapped in this um, an apartment block, and the end of the film is almost that the zombies are coming up behind him. He realizes he's stuck in the building. He needs to get across the roof of the next building, so uses a grappling hook, throws it across effectively the street a few times until he finally gets purchase, pulls it taut, and then jumps. And of course, what happens? Bam! Face first into the concrete wall of the building on the other side, and <laughs> right. he just he just let he's kind of tied it around himself. He's just dangling there. Thinking, yeah, that's kind of what I was expecting was going to happen. <laughs> but it's there, there could be variations upon that. It could be, for instance, could have tried to use his feet to brace the impact. His legs are probably going to break doing <laughs> doing that. Or but, if he's particularly particularly strong with the equipment he's got, means that there is at least some kind of a way of lessening the blow. There is more than just that one possible outcome of splat, which is what I think the role would come in to help to uh, determine whether it's going to be at the good end of the scale or the bad end of the scale. I think there's advice that could be given to a GM on how to handle that. But I would say in terms of reality, if I were running that game and the character was jumping out on the rope, then if it's a heroic game like Pop Cthulhu or something like that, where characters can do beyond human things, then you give them a chance of success. I would probably say to them, that sounds very dangerous. If you make this role, you successfully do it. And if you fail it, then I'm going to inflict some penalties or damage. You, you, you might break your leg. And then they kind of know where they're going. But if that DM said, okay, make a roll, and then they were successful, and then he said, oh, you dislocate your shoulder? Well, how was that successful? That wasn't, that was, mm. oh, you're successful, but I'm going to screw you. That's, you know. At yeah. least it wasn't your skull. <laughs> but but yeah, then this sort of goes back to the the whole idea of you know if you've got an inexperienced GM like that, mm. or the rules aren't telling them what to do, so you know they're desperately floundering around and you know try to think of the most realistic thing that comes to mind. Perhaps in that case, you know, a more complex rule system would suit them because it's it's giving them more guidelines, it's giving them training wheels until they perhaps build up the confidence and build up the judgment to not do stupid shit like that. And in in Seventh Ed Call of Cthulhu, this was something we put in that exact thing the first step would be to kind of agree a goal of if i do make this role i'm going to have successfully swung on the rope and got across there is that cool okay now make the role 
if it's afterwards that you then hit me with that, I've seen that happen at the table like you just described. And it really causes players to disconnect with the game. It's like, well, I successfully rolled and, and now you're just like, what was I rolling? Why did you? Yeah. And there are some games that definitely do take drama or uh, action over anything else. I think 7C's probably got the rep for that. So, is it cool, dramatic? You can do it. But, I mean, the DM could doesn't have to necessarily go on the side of dramatic and cool and heroic. It can, They can be, have a very hard, realistic thing in mind. And you ask, is it possible to do this? And the GM says, well, no, even if you make the roll successfully, you're going to take damage. Do you still want to do it? And then you decide. I think so, that's fair. So, I mean, it, it sounds like then, you know, a big part of establishing realism for the group there is basically consensus. I think so. Then you've got what happens if, if you've got a mismatch of expectations about what a game is. I mean, I remember, I think it was you, Paul, talking about um, playing a game of feng shui, was it? Because I think that's a great example of, of how a mismatched set of expectations about what is realistic for a game can, can lead to yeah. catastrophe. Yeah, so rolling up, I think we'd only just made characters and it was like the first session. Oh, I haven't played Feng Shui before, so I was playing it. And I'm like, well, what kind of game is this? Because it was pretty new at the time and I didn't really know it. And, and, the, and the games master said, oh, you know, at higher levels, it's, you, you know, your character might end up being able to run across a stream of bullets and do crazy otherworldly things like that. And I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Um, lots of martial arts and, and so on. So there's this uh, door that's locked with a padlock. And I say, okay, well, I go up and I kick the lock off because I think that'll be kind of exciting and traumatic. And the gameskeeper looks at me and says, but you'd hurt your foot. <laughs> I'm like, well, I know I might not be able to do it, but if, I, if in a little while I might be able to run across streams of bullets, is kicking a padlock really that far out? Hmm. Um, so... Yeah, he was, on the one hand, it's totally unrealistic streams of bullets running. On the other hand, it's, oh, you'd hurt your foot. It's like, oh, I don't yeah. really see the two linking up. Doors are tough cookies, as I have also found out in games. <laughs> but I've not looked at the mechanics for Feng Shui. So, I mean, are there any particular guidelines that are given to the GM there about about what is realistic and what isn't realistic for a player character to attempt? I've no idea. Right. <laughs> but he seemed to be applying straightforward real world logic to that and so I, th I think the takeaway from this is if you're GMing a game within a particular genre have some idea of what the genre constraints and expectations are when applying the mechanics but I, th I think my main takeaway from this discussion is to have a consensus so you know, and sometimes it is just stopping the game for a few minutes and saying Okay, well, it's a it's a ten foot gap that we're going to try and jump across. How realistic is that for a reasonably fit person to jump across? Could they do that? Well, that, I mean, that's a, an or a twenty foot gap or a thirty foot gap. You know, everyone suddenly becomes Neo. They always fall the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's an interesting point as well because I mean, you talk about that that whole thing about jumping across a gap. You may have games where you've got the length that a character can jump being dictated by, say, their strength stat. So you sit down and you try to work out whether the character can jump across that particular gap and you know, what roles are required and so on. But where I sometimes struggle with this is the fact that all of that is an abstraction in the first place. You know, that gap doesn't actually exist. 
it's not like you're looking at a real your know, hard and fast gap of you know exactly 8.7 feet or whatever it becomes the abstraction of whether you can jump across that and you know in my mind all that's really important is is this within the character's capabilities is it not is it something that they can do trivially or is it something that's going to require a role mm. or is it something that's just impossible to them that's exactly the thing though if somebody thinks that's absolutely impossible and somebody thinks it is possible that's where the disagreement yeah. comes in right i mean if i'm jumping one roof to the next you know on consecutive houses that seems credible if i'm jumping one roof to the next across a street that's a very different thing to me and to me is the important thing i think but i think a lot of reality comes down to what we perceive as reality yeah so i watched a film on netflix about rock climbing in uh, yosemite and back in the i think it was the 50s the first climbers went there and they climbed up the rock face and there was a guy that was going up the, the massive cliff face and it took him weeks and he would climb up a bit knocking in uh, metal spikes well, yeah. into the wall and then he'd go down, have his tea, go to bed. And then the next day, he'd climb back up to where he was and knock in some more metal spikes and then have ropes and gear and all this stuff. And it took him literally weeks. Now, there's a guy who can do that with no equipment in less than a day. Hmm. And he just goes up it. So I think if you went back to the 50s and asked that first guy, yeah, do you think anybody could climb that without any gear? It'd say, you must be mad. That's impossible. Surely. But in either case, I mean, you're clearly talking about someone who is skilled and experienced and, and knows at least the basics of what they're doing. So let's take that example of trying to climb up to the El top Capitan of... Capitan or whatever yeah. it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, someone trying to climb up to the, the, the top of, uh, of, of this rock. If someone is completely unskilled... This is something that we see happen quite a lot in role-playing games. Do you think that they should stand automatically stand a chance? I mean, you know, we got the idea in Call of Cthulhu that with, you know, a, a few exceptions, that, you know, someone trying that is, you know, generally at least got a 0-1% chance, unless Keeper just says no. So it's kind of an extreme role. Yeah. <laughs> if it was me in that example, I would not be able to even get one foot up the damn thing, up the damn Hard, Hardly anyone would. Yeah. Um, be able to get far, you know. But I think in, in mechanics terms then, an extreme role by the rules of the book is something which is on the limits of human capability. And in reality, humans have done it. So I guess I'd have to sort of say by the rules, so you'd have a, like a zero four chance of doing yeah. it, which isn't realistic. Yeah, well, I mean, there's that, that word, realistic. But it's the kind of thing that I think... You know, if you as the, the GM turned around at the table to the player attempting that and sort of said it's not realistic for you to even try that, there'd be some kickback. You know, they, they'd want to put it to the dice. Mm. So, you know, in that case, it sounds like, um, you know, perhaps a sense of fairness or a sense of wanting to engage with the mechanics or engage with the, the reality of the, the setting trumps the limitations of the mechanics. Yeah, and yeah. I think also simplifying mechanics yeah. is part of that. So it's simplified... Well, and it's not that simple, is it? Simplified to a number out of 100, yeah. which is 100 chances. So that's quite a lot. 
But in reality, I'd say you do have to take probably something like a billion people and one of them would be able to do it. In yeah. reality, how many people could actually free climb that face? It's probably less than 100 in the world. So say maybe one in 100 million, something like that. And, you know, that's a big bunch of dice to roll. Who's going to roll that? You touched on the idea of encumbrance before, Paul, mm. and you know the, this idea of resource management and tracking you know, different stats, different resources, different pools is a big part of a lot of games. Well, how do you think that, that relates to creating this, this sense of reality about a game? For me, there's a definite sliding scale between the amount of bean counting and the amount of tedium that I feel. Um, <laughs> the more bean counting, the more I turn off and go, so I just go, I want to go home. Matt? Don't you do bean counting for a job? Exactly. This is why I don't want to have it in a game. <laughs> now, th- this is why I loved skills like preparedness in Trail of Cthulhu or uh, survival points in Dead of Night. I can easily just flick one across the table if it's a survival point and say, right, my phone does this, or I've, I find a crowbar. Or preparedness, oh, look, I just so happen to have a crowbar. Or, hey, my trusty crate of dynamite. I don't have to rely on, all right, I spend $53.46 to get this. My average income is this. My expenditure is this. No, fuck that shit. That is not fun. <laughs> but it is a level of bean counting, even with survival points. You maybe only start with like, is it 10 of them Five. or something? Five of them. So there's not many beans, but you still are counting them. So I think it's it's more about the complexity of it. I think. Yeah, it's a question yeah. of degree. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I, yeah, and it's really interesting because, I mean, for example, in 7th in edition, you abstracted the management of money to some degree by using the credit rating scale as a way of just not having to manage the, the dollars and cents that a character was spending. But I, I fairly regularly on places, you know, particularly like Reddit, on the Call of Cthulhu subreddit, encounter GMs and players who are very into tracking every last cent of their character's expenditure and tracking every item that you know their character might have. Because that fascinates me, because how would you do that in a game? It's hard enough in real life. Mm. I have a sheet on the fridge, and when myself and my wife buy groceries or whatever, we, we just jot down what we spent roughly on the fridge, so we just got a track of how much we spent that month. But that doesn't take into account the mortgage and the MOT on the car or buying new tyres for the car or tax, income tax, things like that. There's so much in the modern real because that's what we're talking about, real modern-day world, that you have to spend stuff on that just disappears out of your account. Are they taking that into account? Well, I think this, more than anything else we've discussed so far, pins down the difference between reality and, and verisimilitude. So if an important part of the reality of their character is keeping track of expenditure and keeping track of equipment, or if an important part for the keeper is that resource management then it's very unlikely things like mortgage payments and car repairs, unless they're a a crucial part of the game, are going to be that important to the whole thing. They may be quite happy to abstract that, and that won't affect their suspension of disbelief. But on the other hand, being told, all right, you you go out and you buy a new shotgun, don't worry about the money, that for some reason does. Yeah, so it's a very difficult thing to balance that sense of money. Because in D&D, you gain gold pieces, and that's an important economy that you can spend on magic items or healing potions. But in modern-day games, just call a Cthulhu... There's not really that same economy. Modern day games like Call of Cthulhu, which was written in 1981. 
Well, okay. No, I meant based in the modern yeah. day. Right, okay. So set using the modern day as a setting. Okay. Um, you know, money is so much more complex, it seems to me. You should see some of the spreadsheets I have to keep track of my budget. <laughs> at work or at home? Home. Ah. Work's even worse. Oh, okay. That sounds intriguing. I would be interested to see that. Really? Oh. <laughs> I love seeing how people manage their money. It's, it's like, you know, 50% Kickstarter. Yes. yes. Only 50%. Whoa. Funnily enough... <laughs> I think you'll no, probably I... find it's seventy-five percent mortgage, fifty percent Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing it adds up to more than hundred percent, Matt. Okay, sometimes it may be. Yeah. Now, there's uh, I break it down depending on whether it's like a regular, ongoing, like recurring charge every month, like bills, mortgage, etc. Then I have a section for Kickstarter. Yeah. Then I have eBay and other online purchases, and then I have basically the card for anything else, which is normally like groceries and and so on and so forth, and I, then money coming in to offset some of that. I, I certainly go through my fen- my accounts and then have a breakdown. That's true. Yeah. Oh, I, I keep it almost <laughs> up to date day by day, so I know how much. I've no, it's have a mental breakdown. I mean. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> But it's interesting to me the way that some games abstract this stuff. I mean, we talked about credit rating in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. But I think uh, a particularly interesting one to me, which sort of keeps that sense of reality but abstracts it, is what uh, David Black did in The Black Hack, which is to put it down to a dice roll, that you've got dwindling resources like, say, you know, in The Black Hack, the classic one is torches. So... Instead of counting all the torches or lanterns and, and the oil and so on that you go into a dungeon with, every now and then you make a roll. You start up with a particular die size. You know, I can't remember. You know, it might be a D10 or a D8. And if you roll a particular amount, it's either you know, high or low. I can't remember which. Then the die size decreases. I think it's a one because every dice yeah. has got a one on it. So when you roll yeah, a one, that, it goes down to the smaller dice size. Yeah, that makes sense. The idea is that you can sort of see your resources dwindling down and there's always a chance that they're going to go down with each one. They're not going to run out immediately, but you can sort of see them ebbing away. Eventually, you get down to the D4 size. You know, you've got a one or four chance of it going out there. You roll your one, pff, gone. Yeah, because to my shame, at the club a few years ago, we sat down to play D&D and we were like, writing gear down on our character sheets and like oh we're going down in the dungeon we got oil yeah we got oil how how much i've got a bottle okay and the words that came out of my mouth how long will that last (laughs) yes it's like why am i even asking that i get some batteries in my torch i don't say how many hours are they good for but that's potentially an interesting thing. I mean, we touched upon this when we did the survival horror episode, that um, you know, managing mm. dwindling resources is actually potentially a really powerful thing for building a sense of horror. But also it's an expectation built into D&D rules. Yeah. So as soon as I start playing that, I go into that headset, I think. Yes. Yeah. I don't know, I like the idea that your resources can run out and this plays very much into the idea of realism let's say we're talking about the black hack versus D&D the fact that you can get down to the deepest level is this dungeon and that's the point at which you realise your torches are beginning to run out are you going to be able to get out before you're plunged into darkness or a survival horror thing in Call of Cthulhu do you track your equipment and your food resources do you track your ammunition mm. because it's, it's very easy to abstract stuff like that and say that it doesn't it doesn't matter but but, you know, if you're down to your last bullet and you know you're being hunted by a hungry ghoul, then that suddenly becomes fucking terrifying. Yeah, and I would say, generally, I wouldn't track it. But at certain points, I might sort of say, actually, how many bullets have you got in your revolver? Mm. 
Is that all you've got? Okay, well, we better start counting those. But I don't think you need to do it in Call of Cthulhu all the time. I think only one instance where I can think of where it did actually make a difference is the gun in Jailbreak. Yeah. Uh, how many bullets are left in that? Yeah, yeah I, I can't absolutely. remember where I picked it up from, but um, there, there was a tip that I read in probably on RPG Net where someone had said, you know, if you're playing this, get yourself a cap gun and put a strip of caps in, you know, that you, you don't tell the players how many caps there are. And, you know, each cap represents how many bullets there are. And every time someone fires the gun, you tell them to pull the trigger. And so you get that wonderfully visceral moment in the game where, you know, after a few bangs, someone pulls the trigger and it just goes click. Mm. And, it, you know, it's so much more impactful than just, you know, saying, nah, it doesn't fire. Especially as everyone else around the table, their eyes light up and it's suddenly open season. <laughs> Okay, well, more realism next episode, folks. We'll be looking into realism in setting. And I'm a little frustrated because this episode, I didn't even get to say what a load of rubbish combat rounds are. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we have people to thank. Well, we always have people to thank because all our regular Patreon backers, the money that you give us, uh, it pays for uh, all our running costs. It keeps the podcast going. It pays for our time in creating it. And we are fantastically grateful to each and every one of you. And we have a few new people to thank this time. At the $1 level, we begin with saying thanks to Matthew Seaton. Great first name there. Thank you very much, Matthew. (laughs) Thank you, Matthew. Yes, thank you very much, Matthew. And also thanks to Ben Orvad. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Indeed, thanks, Ben. And then our thanks go out to John Fiala. Indeed, thank you very much, John. Thank you, John. And also thanks go out to Eric Phillips. So thank you very much, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Moving up to the $3 level, it is time to toast some Maccas. I mean, not, not over an open fire, but with the next best thing. So our thanks and cheers go out to Peter Larson. Indeed. Thank you very much, and cheers, Peter. Cheers, Peter. And our cheers go out to Dennis Rickard. So, cheers, Dennis. Cheers, Dennis, and thank you. Cheers and thank you, Dennis. And our thanks and cheers go out to Kyle Winters. Thank you, and cheers, Kyle. Hey, cheers, Kyle. And now we move on to the real horror. See see what I did there? Real horror? Real? Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yes, at the $5 level, and we do have two new $5 backers to thank, we, we, we sing to them. Scott, really? Is that real singing? <laughs> I think it is horribly real. I think it strips away all artifice, all pretense of competence, and that thin veneer of sanity that allows us to experience the world around us without seeing the horrible reality that underpins it all. You mean Bjork? Yeah, yes, <laughs> that, that, that is clearly exactly what I mean by <laughs> Also available on Spotify. <laughs> We're up there with Bjork on Spotify. <laughs> side I mean, by side. Not really, but... <laughs> not in any respect, but... Um, yeah. Well, our first song goes out to Martin Wright. So Martin, and well, and everyone else, just to explain what we're going to do here, normally Paul goes to town with the post-production and covers up all the sins of our lack of musical ability with auto-tune and sound effects and God knows what else. But in this case, because this is an episode about realism, we are going to do this live. So thank you very much, Martin, and uh, 
God help you. Yeah, indeed, Martin. Thank you. Uh, yeah, brace yourself. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Martin. Martin. Thank you, 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 Martin. And keeping up the trend of very good first names here, our next victim is Matthew Broom. So, thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. No one will be spared. <laughs> no. Well, thank you, Matthew. Th- and, and, sorry. Right. Okay. Thank you, Matthew Broom. On social media. Now I'm pleased to see we have a new iTunes review from Emma's iPhone 6. The good friends are my friends. I've been listening to this podcast for the past two years and have finally felt compelled to write this review. Matt, Paul and Scott very clearly not only have a deep knowledge of the source material but also a, vis- but also a visceral passion for the genre. When the three hosts are talking and interacting with one another it is with a friendly tone and frequently a bit of humour, that draws in the listener, not unlike sitting around with your friends. Each host has his own voice, and it is not uncommon to hear differing opinions on a topic. This is a boon, as these moments can lead to a deeper understanding. It is a fun podcast that is well-produced, and should be in the playlist of not only HPL fans, but fans of horror in general. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, thank you very much to Emma and to her iPhone 6. Indeed. Thanks, Emma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 was, that was rather lovely. And I do like the description of us having a visceral passion for the game. I, that, that works on a number of levels, I think. Well, I think because it, it features the word visceral, Scott. Yes. Anything with that word in you, you're drawn oh, yes, to. Absolutely. I was just thinking of own voice as well. I mean, I've tried using Scott's one before and it really didn't work out well. I, I, I can barely use mine. I, I wouldn't try. Uh. But yes, if any of the rest of you fancy writing us a review, not just on iTunes, but wherever you get your podcast from, if it has the facility to leave reviews, we would be extraordinarily grateful. We've also had some feedback on our recent episode about Heaven and Earth. Uh, Walter Vermeyen on G Plus says, The way Matt explained the meta-narrative seems like this would put in some fixed points in any campaign of Heaven and Earth. Is that the case, or can you get around that? I'd say the latter. It's You put in as much as you want to. There's no chapter in the book that says, these are the set scenes that must be in every game. But I think there's a, you know, there's a broader point there, which is certainly with games with lots of canon, lots of background, and even with published scenarios and, and campaigns, you should never be afraid to change stuff. If you want to deviate from what we or anyone else has written into a game, we're not going to come round and stand behind you as you're GMing and tell you you're doing it wrong. Well... I mean, Paul and Matt won't. I, mean, I, I will, but... <laughs> and Shane McLean on G+, says, On the subject of the map, 
and Matt having tried to do one a few times. As a GM, I would create half a dozen similar but not identical maps, small differences, and give a different one to the players each session without them knowing you are changing it. This could be interesting when they realise it. I think that's a great idea. I, I, I really that. like yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's genius. Hang on a minute. Where's the town hall go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great. As, um, as one of the examples, I think we talked about Mulberry Street. That moves. So it's completely in keeping with it. <laughs> It'd be pretty cool, actually, just to do with handouts in general. To like the next week, you give them what seem to be the handouts, but for some reason they've changed a bit, especially if it's like a magic book or something like that. Or, or if it's a Call of, of Cthulhu game and someone is suffering a bout of indefinite mm. insanity. Yeah. 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 And Transhuman on Discord said. I've just finished the latest episode, and I must say it hasn't entirely sold me on heaven and earth. It sounds like too much is referential to the inspirations for my taste. Maybe that's wrong, but either way, it is definitely an interesting game, and one I haven't heard of before. I need a sand trombone noise about now. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm assuming that means that, what, too rooted in Judeo-Christian imagery and mythology? That's the way I take it. But again, it's the how much of that do you really want to bring into the game or not? If you just want to focus on the normal modern day existence in Potter's Lake or some of the the more, say, conspiracy theory aspects of the game, then there's plenty more that you can draw from without having every scene seem like it's set in a church. As a game, it seems very set in a particular setting yes and i guess if that setting doesn't grab you it's probably not the game for you no. is it oh true yeah if you don't like small town america and you don't like if you but want a sci-fi game it's definitely not your kind of thing yeah yeah it's a particular setting and yeah well then finally some last thoughts to wrap up our discussion of realism in game mechanics so to wrap this part up which has been about reality and realism in game mechanics we've had a quite a long discussion about that what have we as individuals taken away from this discussion have we come to any realizations i don't want too much reality in my games i try to get away from reality whenever i play an rpg so to have a little bit of a disconnect is good but not to the point where it completely suspends my disbelief or i think hang on that can't happen but but i think you're potentially conflating two things there which is realism or perhaps more verisimilitude or buy-in and reality because i i think it's it's fair to say that the vast majority of role-playing games have some kind of fantastical or science fiction elements there are very few that are rooted entirely in the mundane world so saying that you're getting away from reality, I mean, that's pretty much baked into the premise of almost any game you'll play anyway. I would argue that's more on the setting front than the mechanical front. I don't want it to be too realistic. I don't want it to feel too granular. I want a degree of abstraction where I know I'm playing a game rather than experiencing real life. Yeah, this discussion has been interesting for me because it's made me challenge some of my own assumptions because I generally do not like crunchy games. I don't like games with lots of rules in them. Mostly because, yeah, I'm getting old and my ability to keep track of them all and remember them all is fading. But it has made me remember, you know, how much fun engaging with some of the more complex mechanics. I mean, particularly things that I normally try to avoid, like the bean counting we were talking about, tracking resources. How used in an interesting way, used as, you know, say, a tool for creating horror or a sense of tension about when things are running out, can actually add something interesting to a game rather than just become an exercise in tedium. I think perhaps we're looking to correlate crunchy mechanics with a greater degree of realism. 
and I'm not sure that's well founded. Yeah. I think there's a striving to pursue realism with greater complexity of rules. When I sit down and play a game and it's got a really gritty, realistic feel, it's not necessarily because of complexity of mechanics. That can just be because we've all bought into that premise and we're just making it feel very, I guess, realism and intensity and seriousness kind of go together in my head. Well, I think that then leads us on very nicely to the next episode where we talk about the importance of setting in creating that sense of realism. Until next time, folks, keep it real. It's me, Paul, saying good night. It's me, Scott, saying, what, really, Paul? Really? And, and cheerio. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.